Let's talk about data. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. That was from Sherlock Holmes. And he was right. Data is the new oil, it was said. And we can see it now during the crisis, the big pandemic. It is evident that under public health emergencies, particularly an early epidemic, it is fundamental that genetic and other healthcare data is shared across borders in both timely and accurate manner before the outbreak of a global pandemic. However, although the COVID-19 pandemic has created a tidal wave of data, most patient data is siloed not easily accessible and due to low sample size largely not actionable. So how can we solve this problem? What is the ethical way to do? Okay, let's discuss this with someone who knows what he's talking about. Someone who knows everything about ethics and data sharing. Okay, I have the right guy for this job. Francis Crawley, my good old friend, ethicist and philosopher. He's also the executive director of the Good Clinical Practice Alliance. He's a member of the Data Stewardship Working Group of the Virus Outbreak Data Network Vodan. But where to start? What I think is this. Sharing data can help us to make better decisions and lead a happier life and to develop resilience on our species journey. Okay, let's get started. And there we are, we are live. Our very first podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. Welcome, welcome everyone. Thank you. So we today we have in our very first and hopefully not last podcast, Dr. Daryl Baker from Nottingham, UK. Hey, good to see you. And I'm so glad to have you on our show, and especially this this very the very first one, Francis Crawley from Brussels, Belgium. <laughs> and um, yeah, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. Well, it's great. It's great to be here with both of you. I don't know where we're going, but I think that's we don't know either. That's that's. Uh, I think we are not going anywhere, but it's that's fine. Is, is um, that you talking about the European Union or? Um, or... Yes, that's. We will we will come to that. We are close to the the, the formal Brexit, and now we have someone <laughs> sitting here from from Brussels and someone from the UK. So if you want to fight, you can do it, of course, no. during the podcast. That's, <laughs> that's perfectly fine. And our listeners will like that. So, but to, to jump right in. Um, so Francis, so for the, for the listeners out there, so we know each other since about, uh, probably about a year, one and a half years. And we came together because we were both interested in data sharing and, uh, and the ethical aspects of how we can share um, patient data and, and healthcare data in the healthcare space. 
So that what brought us together and we both formed an organization which is called Rapida, which its aim it is to facilitate this data sharing and to bring in um, different stakeholders from the all over the world to make this a reality, to make this easier. So um, what, what to, to, to give a little bit of feedback. So Francis, where do you think, what, what's the importance about data sharing in healthcare? So when, when we're talking about data, um, I think we're talking, for example, about genetic data, personal uh, health um, data, you can find the medical records or clinical data from clinical trials. So, so what is the, why is it important to share data? Well, I think that's something we still have to find out, to be honest, why it's important, because we don't seem to be very good at it. Mm. You know, I, I think we're Probably really not. good at talking about it. And we've been talking about it for a long time. But when we go out there in the world and actually see how many people are willing to take a pile of data out of their pocket and hand it to somebody else, we don't see that happening so much. Don't, so don't, I, I think think, don't you think it's interesting yeah. where people are used to utilizing sort of social media and, and they're happy to sort of share information on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on, um, I mean, we talk about genomic information, but quite literally you could find a lot more about somebody through their social media um, aspects of data as well as genomic too, so. Oh yeah, we're all too happy to share our, I mean, and I should preface that, I mean, Facebook and Twitter and Google, they're very happy and they're doing it very well too. They're very happy to share our data mm. and they're doing an excellent job of it. We should, you know, we shouldn't underestimate that at all. I mean, and I think our, you know, well, we, we said we were going to go for de demonetizing, so we might as well start there. And I think our governments are doing a very good job of sharing our data too. <laughs> so, you know, we, we um, yeah, but we have a hard, we have a hard time, but the, the interesting part really there is that that data is largely shared within an economic framework. Mm. You know, it's a marketplace of data and uh, science is still trying to figure out how to enter in that marketplace and what its specific place is in that market and, and how to how to manage itself in that marketplace because somehow science also wants to say we're different than the rest of the data out there you mm -hmm. know we have economic data and we have we have uh, national security data or and then we have you know this scientific data where we don't know how to market it we don't know how to bring it into the marketplace but why do you think is that this big problem is it mostly because everyone is aware that um, obviously healthcare data, this is a very sensitive topic. So uh, not everyone wants to share their medical history of obviously for, for many obvious reasons or their genetic data, or is it um, that the whole healthcare system, especially if you think globally is just too fragmented and there are too many different players, too many um regulatory problems borders that that keeps us from 
properly sharing data. I think there's, I mean, I think you're right there, but I think <laughs> there's a more fundamental level. That is data is coin, it's currency. Mm. It, it's, it's, uh, it's actually becoming and will become, I'm convinced, the monetary unit that we use. So, you know, we used to have our dollars and francs and pounds and all based on silver or preferably on gold. Huh? And then now we've moved to into a, a sphere where we base it. Actually, probably most of the world's currencies are based on the US dollar. And the dollar is, you know, backed up by our good friend Donald Trump. So we know how secure that is. You know, so and, and we all love and trust him. If you go to a rally, you will know that. But um, that's that's, and, and I think what the what data brings us is a real currency that we can use. That's what Bitcoin has understood, and other and others of these data coins. And I, and I think we have to understand it that way. I think in order to really understand why, uh, let's say patient level data, hospital data about patients or so is also a kind of commodity. And it belongs, if you talk about hospital data and then you have genomic data in there too, as well, then you're talking about really a national system and you're going so, to come into national sovereignty. So I think we are covering here a very fundamental uh, topic of, and a big problem is in that um, from my experience working in different countries uh, over the years is there's a massive um, misunderstanding between different economic areas, different countries in who should own the data. Like I think in... Um, if you talk to patients or the healthy individuals that want to manage their data, most will say, look, this is my data. I want to, to own the data and I want to um, say who can look at it. I want to decide who, with whom to share my data. But governments or companies like Facebook, they may have a completely different idea about who owns the data and who should earn money from it. I, I go back to I go back fundamentally to, it, it comes back to my fundamental question of who pays the payer, because in the end, it's a monetary, if we're talking about genomic information and genomic sequencing, that has a massive impact. And if you remember what happened when Genomics England first started sequencing, and they said that the government, which is a governmental owned um, project, um, they said that they were not going to allow access or free access, free download. And at the time, people were sort of gem banking and downloading all kinds of, uh, of data. And they said, no, mm. we're going to spend this amount of money. It's our, our taxpayers' money. Therefore, our taxpayers have made an investment in this. And so we want to um, effect effectively monetize it th themselves. I think the long-term plan was to monetize the, the actual data itself, but to keep it in-house and not effectively give it away to the world free and that's that created a a kind of negativity towards what was what david cameron was doing at the time and those groups were doing at the time um but in in essence your population through their taxes are are paying for that investment in 
the infrastructure. And the infrastructure was the NHS linking to genomics England and then third-party companies that were that were effectively brought into Cambridge and brought into the UK and, and, and dictated to the terms of what the sequencing was doing. And at the time, <clears throat> I was doing a lot of sequencing and a lot of um, human genome sequencing. And so for me, seeing that, I thought this is a new way of, uh, of dealing with things. Obviously, the interpretation and the understanding of, of how that, that genomic information was going to be then used, well, that's something different. Um, but that was what they wanted to answer. They, their initial point was, okay, we want to sequence um, 100,000 people. Um, what's the most efficient way of doing that? Well, let's concatenate it all into one area and get everybody on, on site. If you don't agree to this particular rules of our game, then I'm sorry, you can go elsewhere and we'll, we'll choose somebody else that doesn't. So they chose, chose had, a, had a round of companies from a whole host of, of sequencing through to software, through to uh, connections within the NHS itself um, as, a, as a means of, 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 of accessing this, this pot of gold of money to do this sequencing. So they, they did it in a very nice way. The problem with that is it created this as we know, siloing of information. It's like, how do we share information without sharing information? And that created a, for, for some anybody in sales, that's a perfect opportunity. If you have a, a wealth of information that's, that's siloed in one particular area, how do we monetize that in one way? But equally on, on, a, on a scientific level, it's how do we get valuable insights from that data without sharing it? And that's, it's kind of like a, what what was called walling of the data walling uh, wall, a wall guarding of that data and what that created um was a process of uk having their data a U eu having their data us china japan all having their siloed bits of data and how do we share information without sharing and that's the it has many it, it has many areas to actually go down so my question would then go here to Francis, basically. Why, how do you think we can change this? Obviously, we are living now in a completely different world since, uh, since over a year we have this pandemic hitting the planet. And I think that changed obviously a lot. So people got aware that we need to change, uh, to, to share data and to change the system how um, to break up data silos. Obviously, we need to compare data from the, the original COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan with uh, new outbreaks that happened in the United States or in Europe or in Asia, uh, other parts of Asia or in Africa to understand how the virus interacts with uh, the host. So a lot changed. But Francis, do, do you think people got this now or are they still uh, in the same mindset as they were before the pandemic? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, if you think about February, March, April this year, mm. you know, all the scientists were out there saying, oh yeah, let's, you know, let's be best friends. Let's share data. You know, I'm going to be generous. You'll be generous. We trust each other, you know, and there was this kind of, euphoria out there about sharing data. And uh, so they all got together and they all wrote guidelines and they wrote, you know, uh, different manuals on how to share data and they put together clubs and, and all kinds of different agreement groups out there and they were going to share data. And then they said the how they were going to share the data. 
well, you guys will know a lot better than me, but I haven't seen it, you know. So what's, and, what's the and problem? I, I, and I have the feeling that that um, the people generally want to, but I do think, I mean, I do think going along with what Axel said, COVID has been good in the sense that, that it's made us aware that we should sh share data. We're also finding out better how, how we can share data, which is really good. Uh, but we're really in the how part and we're, I still think far from the do part. But how's that? Is it bureaucracy? It, well, you know, are you going to share your bank account with me? I think I think there's lots of uh, clubs, isn't there? There's lots of clubs out there that um, <laughs> that uh, love to. I mean, you, you talk talk about your consortia, that but there's lots of little consortias out there that that love to either share their grants or share their uh, work together to sort of get grants, and so. I think there's something in there that, that, that the old nepotism circle still uh, still holds sway over a lot of this, and that's that's one of the the, the interesting parts of of this debate about about data and and, and access to data and who owns data, um, because yeah, I mean if if it's if it's limited to you only can join my club or bias in some way, and I can't get access to that data, or I have to pay a huge amount of money. Such as the the pharmaceutical companies are accessing uh, John Mix England's data. I mean, that's a, a ten million dollar, um, ten million pounds, sorry, uh, access uh, for those those group of farmers accessing that data. And it's like, well, isn't that? Uh, I, I know they're not downloading the data; they're just doing uh, reporting on that data. But it's still access to that data and 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 the findings of that of, of the UK population. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, as you say, I mean. You keep talking about the dollar amounts to, to produce one or another kinds of data. I mean, data is is work. You have to generate data. It doesn't. It's not going to come by itself. And you know, it's same with Bitcoin. Bitcoin required that it had to be generated. It had to be energy had to be put into it. Work had to be put into it in order to mine the coin. I mean, literally, the, the, you had to mine the coin. And that's why, that's why people are, that's why it's difficult for people to share data because they put in an investment in it and they want a return on their investment, which is perfectly normal, which is perfectly normal there. And unless we, we, we realize that reality, that there, there's a commercial aspect to this, that there's an, a commerce aspect to this, then I, I think, then I think we'll, we won't succeed or we won't succeed as well as we could. But this is this is a tricky part uh, um, because if you generate data, let's 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 take a, a typical use case: a patient goes into the hospital. Let's say the patient has a cancer, gets sequenced, and all kind of other uh, lab values are taken. So there's a lot of work involved by the hospital, by the doctors, and it's paid by the insurance company an ideal case scenario. And then it's maybe shared, the data is that maybe shared on a government uh, project, government consortium. So who should get paid? Who owns the data in that process? Is, this the, is it the patient? Is it the hospital? Is it the doctor that treated the patient? Is it the government? Or are they all, the, or, or they, or they all have 
some kind of ownership in this process. What do you think? Well, I think there's different aspects. Mm, I agree. You have to separate. One is um, there's two aspects of data, like let's say in, in a health situation, right? There's that about which the data is about. So it's about the patient, right? So it, data, we can see one way we can see data, I think, is as a kind of description or descriptors of, of events, better as events, but also as things and objects as well. So we can see data as descriptors. Huh? And so th that which data describes, those, peop those people in the case of health, they will say, oh, it describes me, so it's my data. But the doctor will say, oh, it's not your data because I did the description mm. and the data is part of a description. It's more or less like if I write a book about you, I'm the author. I feel like I'm the author of it. You're just the subject of the book. I generated all those words and so forth that made the book. And, and then there's a third part. And that is if somebody comes and pays me to write the book, then they're going to say that that book belongs to them, even though it's about you. So it gets complicated that way. And um, yeah, Axel, I lost. So, so what is the solution some, something? that we, I mean, one way we, uh, the, some part of the healthcare industry and then specifically us are talking about since a few years is um, a term called tokenization. That means that we can, like in, in, this, in the same case, like, yeah. it, like it's for cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, that you can set a value for different aspects. So in your example, Francis, basically, we could say, okay, this data set that is produced for this patient, it, it costs $100. It has a value of $100. And a certain part of this goes automatically to the patient, a certain part goes to the doctor, to the hospital, to the back to the insurance companies, and maybe uh, also to um, the, the entity, the organization that started the whole process. Uh, that could be the government or a pharmaceutical company. Would that be an option? I think, I think one of the interesting aspects, aspects of this is is where the, the investment lies. I mean, the, there is the fundamental question of, of doing the research, doing the analysis and getting the genomic information into the system. But why do we do that? Why would a government want to do that? Um, and effectively, it comes down to jobs, effectively. I mean, and how, whether that's uh, getting a answer to a, pa a patient quicker or am I creating inward innovation in my country or my department um, and creating value in some way? Um, and and that's, that's a business model approach to, to this too. So uh, my sales and business brain goes to, goes to that side of things and that the framework's in place for why do I do something? It's, it's fundamentally to make money or to save on a process or to help a system be more efficient in some way. Uh, or I'm doing but the cancer patient doesn't care about the money, right? They want oh, yeah, just to yeah. find a treatment. They want to share their data. I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions I ran across in the healthcare system mm -hmm. is when I was managing the Bavarian blood donor biobank in Munich a few years ago. 
And we had um, um, several hundred thousand patients that were donating their blood and partly also for research purposes. And questions we got all the time from uh, ethics committees, from governments um, and pharma companies was so, And uh, are, do they object that their data is shared for research purposes? And what was surprising to most, like we, we did a, a questionnaire that we ran with, with our patients and over 97% mm. of, of our blood donors had absolutely no problem whatsoever that their data would be shared for mm. research purposes, right? So why is it still so complicated? This, this is amazing. I think the more critically ill a patient is, the more willing they will be to share their data. Yep. And the less, less important their data is to them to a certain extent, or you know, less important their treatment or whatever it is to them, and where they don't see intermediate value, then there's, there'll be a less of an altruistic tendency there. But patients who are very sick or patients who have a rare disease or cancer patients, they want to share. And I saw that with the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR at the European Commission, because I was involved with some cancer groups, pediatric cancer groups at that time. They were putting together a consortium in Europe for pediatric cancer. And they were lobbying at the time that the GDPR was being discussed by the commission and the parliament in order to give broad consent, as they call it, for, for the use of their data. They were actually lobbying that broad consent would go into the GDPR. Now, we can discuss that, but I think largely one should the, what the, the the term broad consent in any event is not in the GDPR, mm. and that's because of the structure I think of the GDPR, which restricts that. But the but patients want that, especially very sick patients want to share their data because they feel they are doing something good, and it's it's something they feel good about doing. So they they do want that, but. If I go to the hospital to get an x-ray because I have a broken arm, and then I find out the hospital sharing that data, I might say, well, you know, and they got, you know, 100 euros for it. Maybe I want 10 euros from that or something. I feel like I'm entitled to it. So that's a, I think that's a different perspective. So maybe it's then only a technical problem. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I think there, and I think there are some, you know, um, these nano publications that you probably know about a lot better than I do. So the nano publications, I think is an attempt to try to solve this problem of, let's say authorship mm. and provenance and things like that. And also, you know, there's been a number of, um, Barbara Bierre had an article in the, uh, yeah, in the New England Journal of Medicine with some other of our colleagues about sharing data and how academics had to get some kind of 
reward, let's say, for the gen data that they generated, if it's going to be shared, you know, and that seems, and also you have uh, other people in Europe also have pushed this idea from uh, the Research Data Alliance, they've also pushed this idea as well. So in order to incentivize uh, researchers to share their data, then there would be some kind of tag on their data that would allow them to well, to me, it's essentially monetize that data. Right. Yeah. So it's basically, um, for, for those of our listeners who don't know, for a researcher working in academia, um, the, the fact that they can be cited, yeah, that other um, scientific publications cite their work, so then their name is mentioned. This is basically the currency of the academic research environment, right? Yeah. So... The, the incentivation is not really by giving them money, but by giving them the option that their data or their um, the part that they play in the in the data collection or analysis is properly um, propagated. It's, it's that they're cited, that their work is recognized as it is. But I, I think right. there's a certain point where we need to consider valorization of, of, of research and the projects that people are doing too, because um, it's, I think that's an important element that's, that's missing from a lot of scientific research where, where the, again, I'm coming in with a business angle of this, of where, where business and where the commercial aspects of, of research can be quote unquote exploited in some way or used in some way for the good or bad in some instances. But the whole idea that, that a lot of researchers um, don't understand the value and that comes to things like patenting and um and, and valorization of that data itself yeah but i think we we see increasingly in the universities um you know two things one is what axel said is really true i mean the academics they they get their raises they get their promotions uh, they get their stability and so forth through their publications. So their publications are their currency. There's no doubt about it. You know, that's, that's how they get their promotions and everything else. And that's, you know, they can, they can be the worst teacher in the world, but if they publish, you know, most, most universities will want them to have them around. So, and the, the problem for the academic then is it's always been more or less like a, one-off yeah you know they generate a data set and then from that data set they generate a publication and what happens is and what they've been doing in the past then is they've been putting the publication out there because that's their dollar bills that they're changing you know sharing with other people and the data has been put in the in the in the cabinet and forgotten i think it was out of legacy as well because because in the bioinformatics uh, industry, there's been so many applications. I think the last count was 40,000 different in individual apps that can be used and utilized. Um, probably more, a lot more. Um, but yeah, th there's many aspects of data that, that's, that's not being used. I guess most of the data out there is not used. Sorry, Axel? I think most most of the data we collect um, in academic environments and pharma companies from governments is actually not used at all. It just sits somewhere in some data silo in some server somewhere on the planet and is forgotten. 
because people uh, either have no um, opportunity to share the data in a proper way or they, they don't know how to do it because there is no global framework for doing this in a proper mm -hmm. way. Yeah. And I mean, what you both just said, the key word for data, and you'll both agree with me, you know it better than I do, but the key word for data is utility. And this is a big difference between, let's say, Bitcoin, I think, and the next currency, because Bitcoin is limited. And there's a limited universe, let's say, of Bitcoin. There's no limited universe of data. We can't even imagine a limited universe of data. And not all data, like so each Bitcoin has the same value, but not all data has the same value because right. the more utility you can get from a single data point, let's say, or from a, 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 a data set, the more utility you can get from that, the more value it has. And that is the problem with and that is exactly the problem with the researchers. When they publish the paper, they put the data in their drawer, or even with the pharmaceutical companies, you know, when they submit their data for registration of their clinical trial, they put that in the drawer too. It never goes out there into the community to look at, you know, let's take 10 sets of data on a certain um, therapeutic approach to breast cancer and look at the data, not just the published papers. Mm. And that's what uh, and that's what started to happen. That's what started to happen at the FDA and the EMA. But it's the utility of data that gives it its value. The value of data lies in its utility. And you right. can kill data. And there is data that's dead and that's useless. And there is data out there that is extremely valuable. Well, let's let's so consider some of the most. Valuable. It's a let's, very complicated market. Yeah, let's consider some of the most valuable data out there, and I can the, the the name that springs to mind is Henrietta Lacks, uh, and how much how much would her cells be worth or are worth? You know, so can you, Daryl? Can you can you explain for our listeners what that uh, what that data or that cell lines you're talking about what that is so these were immortal cancer cell lines that that were extracted um dubiously from a lady in the 1950s or was it earlier than that i think it was in the 50s yeah 50s yes and um those cells are used now for um for, for, for most research and so uh, there's estimated that there's more cells of, of her in existence now in laboratories around the world than ever existed in that poor woman's body. Um, but their family um, are, have experienced some atrocious um, conditions uh, and they should be one of the wealthiest families in the world in terms of how those cells have been exploited for every cancer medicine that we know most drugs that are, are, are to market are utilizing those 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 cells in some way or another, and and it's it's sad how the story of that lady and, and, and what what how those cells were were utilized and and the initial part of that was that it was you know I don't think there was any ethical consent at all they were just taken and used mm -hmm. and and sent around and utilized because they realized these immortal cell lines could be could be um, used all over and, and there was no real ethical consent at all but um 
it'd be interesting if she would have withdrawn consent if, if it was known at the time. But you bring up a, a good point, the, the ethics aspect. And uh, Francis, you are you're an expert on ethics, right? So you, 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 did you study it? You are, tell, tell us a little bit about your experience with, with ethics. And, is it, and what interests me in this context is, um, do you think that uh, the development of ethical guidance and guidelines uh, and frameworks in healthcare is it mostly positive or does it also hinder our progress in science? Well, I, I don't think. Well, that's a question. You can be, you can be an expert in, in, the, um, in the guidelines and the things that are written about ethics or, you know, the people you know in a certain sense, but, you know, nobody's, I'm no more an expert in ethics than either of you are or than any person that's listening to this crazy conversation we're having. We're all, we're all experts in ethics. We all, we have to be because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't get along with our families and friends. So we have to be experts in ethics and we understand ethics completely. Nobody, you know, it's not like somebody understands it better than somebody else does, I don't think. Well, why is it so complicated? Yeah, and it's um, because ethics is, a, to me, it's a way of looking at an activity. Mm. And, and that that's, means to look at the activity with regard to human dignity. That's what it means for me. So any activity can be looked at that way. And that's why ethicists are such a pain in the neck because they think they can go everywhere and say anything about everything, you know? And they do that, I do that too, you know? And, uh, and that's, you know, that's how, that's our coin. That's what we try to sell. Um, and, but I think there is a discussion on ethics you know, out there in the world, a really interesting discussion that's uh, unavoidable. It's, inter it's interesting you talk about that as well, because um, I think over the last sort of five to 10 years, in my experience of clinical NGS and working with patients that have had some quite rare diseases or life-limiting diseases, or it it's all about turnaround times and getting an answer as quick as possible. And uh, it's, it's, amazing when you get a result a positive they're very rare uh, in in the whole scheme of things um and it can be quite frustrating in terms of the, some of these projects i've done that have gone into the tens of thousands of genomes and, and not being able to find a a root cause for a particular condition but it's it's helped along the way um but one of the interesting parts of that is my determination to try and find and limit the the time from when a patient comes to me with a condition to getting the answer to them to such an extent where I want to push the boundaries using AI, machine learning, and, and metadata. Um, and this gets into an ethical boundary so that I can go to a patient and say, there is a possibility of you having this condition and we can then do this. Now that has a, a, a massive ethical impact on going towards somebody you think who, who actually are healthy and as somebody once said, prescribing drugs to healthy people, which is the 
pharmaceuticals absolute panacea in terms of uh, how they'd like to run their model. You will have our drugs um, because of this. And um, but it's interesting how this COVID nineteen situation has, has has slammed dunked this into many people's lives in 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 a quite yeah. real way. And and I I, I this. Obviously, the, the, the things that have been happening this year in terms of COVID and what we've been doing uh, have been really interesting. But a lot of people in the NGS world and, and, the, and the rare disease world and the patient groups around the world that are looking at a, a specific mutation that are trying to find an answer to are all going like, thank you. Thank you. You've actually got here now. Now let's, let's see what we can do. And that's the interesting part of, of the decision-making processes. Um, for me since since february up to now is how quick decisions need to be made when it's when it's pandemic wide but how can we then utilize the knowledge base that we've just got over the last year in terms of processes frameworks uh, understanding um, fda approval eu approval uk approval whatever approval it is and, and the actual process models that pharma have gone through to actually produce some drugs i think that's kind of like Again, I think the amount of data out there um, is going to take probably quite some time to to, to digest. But it, 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 again, it gives us a, a really a real insight into not a twelve year cycle from from discovery through to clinical trials and drug discovery. It's like no, it's been it's been less than a year. So obviously, as we can see in the pandemic, speed is an issue, right? I mean, um, Francis and and Daryl, speed is of utmost importance when we want to fight a pandemic. And this is where I see a big problem. Like I was just uh, this week, I was sitting in a, in a consortium meeting um, where, where, where different stakeholders in the, in the healthcare industry were um, organizing the consortium and how they can share data during the pandemic. And I kid you not, like 95% of all the conversation was about procedures, SOPs, uh, ethics committees, no. but and maybe 5%, if I'm, if I'm really positive thinking here, was really about the data and the data sharing aspect in itself. So it's the whole, the process in itself, is it, is it not the problem or is it, uh, how can we make this easier that we don't get stuck in this endless ethics committees meeting and uh, regulatory meetings and get things done what to do we're still young axel we're still we're still young into this we're not i know it sounds like we've been doing this for a long time but in in, in the whole scheme of the world it's it we we've been doing this for seconds you know it's it's been and so it will take time um maybe beyond our time but um it's it's just going to take time to get those rules and regulations in place but they'll, they'll, they'll happen Hmm. So you have a very positive outlook. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> now I spent um, this before talking to you today. I spent about five hours. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, I want to talk about ethics? <laughs> anyway, um, it's uh, it was with the um, it was the annual meeting of the. Forum for Ethics Committees in Kazakhstan, held in uh, Nur Sultan in uh, the Astana, the former, the capital of uh, Kazakhstan. And um, 
and just as a preliminary to, to this, we wrote a project for funding from the WHO to get, um, to actually hate this, but to actually write uh, recommendations and policy, no, write recommendations for ethics committees during, uh, during public, for public health preparedness and response, and also to write policy for government for the same thing. So <laughs> Axel saying, what a huge waste of time this is, you know? But so it was with Kazakhstan, but actually we had uh, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, um, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. Uh, I'm probably missing one or two all on the call, all in this thing. And each of them presented how their ethics committees had responded during COVID-19. Mm. And it's really fascinating. And if you go to a country like Tajikistan or Uzbekistan, where they have no clinical trials, or Kazakhstan, which has, uh, I think, Bakit said they have like 47 ethics committees and they've had like three or four clinical trials. But the only way they're going to get their clinical trials, the only way is to have an ethics committee. There's no country in the world today that doesn't have an ethics committee except maybe North Korea, but every other country does. So, and, you know, I remember when I went to Belarus, when they, this is like, 10 years ago, when they founded their National Ethics Committee. I mean, the people were almost in tears because this was a, people said to me, this was one of the biggest moments, even though it was, you know, it was not going to do anything. It was this open space for this kind of discussion. Mm. And I, I tell you some of the best, is, you know, Axel knows we, we've been in quite a bit of talking this year, uh, quite a few, I've been in webinars all, all year about COVID and so forth. But some of the most interesting discussions I had was just with the colleagues from uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, uh, Azerbaijan, and Ukraine when we were writing this thing. And, you know, they are outside the global discussion. Mm. And I know, Daryl, you will say something about the Middle East too pretty soon. But they are outside this global discussion. And, and they have to be in the discussion. Right. You know, so why do I, if people ask me why I care about access, why I care about data sharing, I will say because you need access to data if you want to have research and you need research if you want to have medicines. And that the whole game of this is access to medicines at the end of the day, either the medicines that already exist or the medicines, as you were describing, that people still need. I can, I can give you another example of where um, I, I won't talk about the Middle East as yet, but as a, a quick anecdote of this was we were doing some analysis with a South American um, tribe and we had to deal with the tribal elders because um, prior to this, there had been bloods that have been researched to just waylaid into this particular area, taking blood samples from the local uh, indigenous population. And 
you know, taken it and gone off and, and created all kinds of weird and wonderful drugs that, that and, and where is the, where is the innovation and for those particular groups to monetize that information and where's the ethics there and there's some horror stories of what happened to those people. Um, and so they were very skeptical about when we were coming up and talking about genome sequencing and creating a database for their uh, population and how they can you know, utilize that on a, on, a, on a governmental level. And they, it was a really, <laughs> it took a long time. And we've had that with uh, um, Aboriginal tribes as well in Australia. Um, and uh, there's an interesting part of that where, where, where the Aboriginal tribes effectively said, okay, but the Australian government said no. And, and, and so, you know, where does apartheid end? Um, and so it's one of those areas where, or, or sorry, sorry, where does ethical consent end? You know, um, um, it, it's 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 one of those weird areas that you, you can kind of come across in the world where where Caucasian genome seems to be taken care of, but outside of Caucasian genome, there's some really interesting um, admissions. Let's just put it at that in the diversity of, of the data that we we can generate, and that's important, particularly now for COVID, and particularly for um, it's, it's probably most important for the, the majority of the planet, like um, for, for people out there who, who don't know, like most drugs developed nowadays on, this, on the planet, they are derived from studies on primarily male white people from Europe and the United States. And a lot of these drugs, they may work very well in older white guys but not so well in people from other ethnic groups living in other countries right well consider warfarin for instance i mean it's okay if you're a caucasian and um i'm wonderful but if you're in thailand or you're in uh anywhere in asia the the adverse drug reactions on warfarin if you have heart disease could be catastrophic um and they're, they're quite easily known but the, the drugs are administrated so when, where does pharmacovigilance and, and, and genetics uh, link in the, into that? And that, that's one of these elements of where genotyping and genetics really is at, at helping, helping individuals and lowering that barrier, lowering the, the cost of decision-making, which is, you know, it's one of those key things. I mean, the, the, the first genome I see sequence was $300,000. Um, now you can get, a, depending on, depending on the, on the, on the sequencing lab and the interpretation costs, uh, it, it's a bit yeah. of a jazz at this moment in time. But I'd say if you're if you're getting if you're spending less than a thousand dollars, it's probably garbage. Um, if you're spending between one and two thousand, then it's probably okay sequencing. But really, we're still at that sort of two thousand to five thousand dollar range, and that usually gets you good sequencing, a good lab, a good interpretation, and maybe some decent bioinformatics that you can then go on and do something with. Um, of course, the barriers are lowering all the time. I mean, the NovaSeq and and uh, and what uh, the BGI are doing, and even PacBio now, um, they're doing some really cool things. And obviously, people like Oxford Nano that are doing uh, doing their um, long read stuff. So obviously, genomic sequencing is a potential game changer. Do you, do you see it already being a game changer in healthcare and precision medicine, or are we still several years uh, from that point? Francis. It's not. It's not popular. Oh, it's not population oh. yet. I mean, 
we're, we're doing stuff in the UK and, and there's global genome initiatives around the planet that are, that, are, that are trying to integrate. I think what the UK are doing is probably the most advanced in the world where we're integrating a, and it, it's quite a, a Goldilocks country really in the sense that we've got a nice population. It's a kind of wealthy population. There's talent and there's, there's um, a good NHS system that has a system in place where they can uh, utilize the hospital structure to sort of see and, and, and manage the, the, the patient care. So it's kind of, it kind of can pay for itself. Um, but when it comes to, let's say, third world countries or countries that have little GDP in terms of, then, mm, then that, that might be difficult. Then you get the corollary of that, which is, which is the Middle East, where they're, they're quite wealthy countries, but they're very, they're very uh, adverse to sort of spend money in, in areas because of they want to sort of make sure that they're getting the best quality for their um, for their money because obviously mm. people come on come come to the countries and 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 take their money and walk away and leave leave no infrastructure behind and and so they're 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 rightly so taking drastic measures to make sure that the sequencings and the programs and the knowledge is kept within those particular countries which is right which is, which, the last so is to spend lots of money and lose the knowledge i mean in this context uh, what what often comes up when we talk uh, also in the industry um, of his patients is that there's a big concern that all of these very cool new technologies like uh, genome editing precision medicine ai will only benefit the rich people like in the, in the in Western societies and all the others basically cannot benefit from it because they cannot pay for these services. What do you think? Is, is, is this a real threat to our healthcare ecosystem on a global level or is, is there a way how to, to manage this? Can we bring all of these new developments also to, to the underserved uh, systems in the world? I think it's the opposite. I think you're, what you said at the end is correct. I think, and it's not us bringing it to them. They're already doing it. Mm. You know, if you go to Africa, a lot more people pay with their telephone in Africa than we do in Europe. You know? yeah, yeah. yeah. And China, everybody pays with their telephone. They don't even know what cash is anymore. You know, and uh, India is very much the same way too. And I can see India getting to a kind of, um, national healthcare system faster than the US. I can right. see that happening very quickly, even with, you know, all the poor people, all the people that you see on the street and so forth, when you walk around in India and, and things like that. The and, and there's a huge commitment there. India is completely under underestimated, you know, mm. I mean, there's a huge commitment within that society to do it. Uh, and, 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 and I see that happening. I see that actually happening there and i think too you know the the only way to address all the diseases that we want to address and all the different patient populations that we want to address and to do that in an economic way is going to be through uh precision medicine and that is ai and and data put together that's basically what it is huh Right. You know, and the other thing is to say, go back to your examples of these um, indigenous people, mm. tribes and, and aboriginals or groups of people like the sand people in South Africa have the same kind of experience and so forth. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, uh, 
the uh, Native Americans also are, you know, this discussion is going on every day out there. Um, one of the things we've, we've done, we have, um, we've mismanaged, let's say, is I think is we have, um, we also have to devalue data and we have to devalue genes, our genomes. We have, we have created too much of an identity between a person and their genome in, in our understanding, in our mindset about it, that we feel my genome is me or my genome represents who I am. I hope that's not the case because I don't want everybody to be as ugly as me or as stupid as me or something like that. But we, we really, we, we shouldn't have that kind of strong identity. And we shouldn't have that strong kind of identity either with our data. That's why it might be much better if it's monetarized and if it's commercialized because it will devalue it in that kind of emotional sense that we have to it there's no and the problem between let's say the sand people or the aboriginals in in uh in australia or the native americans or the people in brazil all the tribes in brazil is the same kind of it's exact same situation that i will have with my data being used by my doctor for something i didn't give that doctor permission to do it's the exact same situation. I know when I go to the hospital, they're robbing my data. I know that, okay? I know they're gonna use it for other things, okay? I know when I go on this podcast with you guys, you guys are robbing my data. I know that, okay? And I know YouTube is gonna rob it again and somewhere else, somebody else will, and an advertiser will take it and, and sell it again. So we know that's happening out there. And when we can, you know, and that's why I think, Axel, that's why these procedural, we can't escape procedures, just like we can't escape law. We can't escape it. And we need it. We need it. Otherwise, we don't know where we are in the world. We, we need these procedures and we need these laws. Yeah. I think one of my arguments against that is I, I, I fundamentally agree with it. Um, but one of the other side of this is that you get the, I don't know, the, 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 the BMW or the Ford, you get one dominant player that will control it, mm -hmm. the, the Google, the uh, Amazon, and you'll get some um, Bezos character that will be a trillionaire, basically, that will control the information and control the drugs and control the market. And so um, if that dude is based in the UK, well, I'm happy, basically. I mean, it, it, wonderful he or she would be uh, an absolute godsend for, for the UK. But for everybody else on the planet, well, sucks to be them. So what it come, what I'm kind of interested in is this idea of population level understanding of genomics so that if there is a, um, a group of datas for a, a particular region, let's say the, the, the Hispanic population or there's a... Uh, Meti population in, in Canada, or there's a, a, a tribal population in the Gulf somewhere that have a particular condition that may be able to be monetized. There may be some blockbuster there that a small country could potentially utilize. Let's say that the, there was a, 
a small country that had the the the, the wonder drug for COVID. They'd be instantly uh, producing huge amounts of capital for their country to develop, and that has wider impacts. Uh, it, it not just in sort of like one drug company, but in the wider population, the wider scheme of of a an individual country. And so, one of the things that I worry about is that that diversity of data may be sucked into the machine, uh, to, to use a, a Pink Floyd metaphor, but to, 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 for it to be sucked into the, into the machine and not, not, there's no capital gain or no monetization of mm -hmm. that for the actual individual country. Um, so I, I wonder, like a few years ago, I, I published a book, um, it's what's called Blockchain and Healthcare Strategy Guide. And in this, I explained um, the potential of building an international pharmaceutical company that is owned by everyone, literally by every person on the planet. So everyone has per se a stake into the company. I know this is a lot of dreaming and wishful thinking, but just uh, um, hear me out on the, on the concept. And that everyone who adds data to this global pharmaceutical company is automatically a stakeholder. Let's say if you share your medical data and it's used for uh, drug development and something comes out of it, you get something back. It may, it may not be much, or you could also say, oh, look, I'm, I have enough money. I don't need anything from this, uh, whatever is coming out or the revenues that are produced, put it back into research. This would be another option. Can you, can you imagine that something like that could work, like a, a global um, entity, a global organization that is not owned by anyone specific, but by all of us? Well, I, I don't know if it will go to the point where it will be owned by all of us, but um, I think what you're described for healthcare data, it's, it's, um, it's not so much a dream as a reality. It's where it's going. It's where it will go. I mean, you know, the good dreamers are the people who dream what will happen, not what won't happen. And, and mm -hmm. you, you, you're, you know, there's no sense. You, everybody can have, you know, wonderful dreams about unicorns and we can probably create them today too. But I mean, if you, you know, you only want to dream about what's going to happen. You don't want to dream about what, what might happen or what could happen, only what will happen. And I think actually you're right on target. The only thing I would say is, and then you have to correct me because you understand it better, but um, you will not have, you, you cannot have just a, a global pharmaceutical company or a, a global healthcare uh, infrastructure based on blockchain isolated from the rest of the economy. Mm. If you want to do that, if you want to achieve that, you have to get the whole economy on there, which is where we're going to go. That's mm. inevitable. And we might even live to see that, probably will live to see that. So I think that the, because the reason is this, there's no such thing as genetic data. There's no such thing as health data. There's no such thing as the weather uh, data about the weather or data about cars. Data is just data. It's perfectly mm -hmm. innocent. 
it all depends upon, again, what you use it for. That's why the GDPR is, is really good in that area because it thinks about purpose and it really drives by purpose. You know, it does allow for categories of data. That's a mistake. There's no such thing as, you know, it's 10 degrees outside, okay? Is that health data? I think that's health data, you know? Is that weather data? It's weather data, you know? Is that um, economics? Yes, because I, you know, my customers might sit inside, outside or inside because of that, you know? Mm. That's innocent. That data point, where however you describe it, you know, that nano publication, whatever you want to call it, that is, that has, that's purpose has to be determined by its use. So we're back to use and we're always going back to use. But I think you're right. I mean, Axel, you, you just said, you know, it's not that you dreamed it, it's just what's going to happen. I don't know, you know. You're out there in the ether, I can see. It's just a matter of people getting used to it. I mean, we are already in an uh, age where data sharing almost becomes the norm yeah you mentioned already that that people share everything on on social media so why stop there why not uh, share everything and if everyone shares everything then as you said like the value of each data package basically becomes meaningless like it's 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 uh, the unity of all of the data that matters and where we can learn from and then run our ai algorithms over it right But sure, the NSA going a little bit, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but going a little bit in the in the different direction, like obviously there are, there are tremendous it. opportunities in 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 uh, using <laughs> data for for changing our future for precision medicine to make us all healthy. But if you think about this, like Francis, you mentioned, like the the enormous opportunities in India. But what if suddenly 1 billion or 1.2 billion people become all healthy and live beyond age 100. And what will this do to our planet? Yeah, I think the Chinese went through that, that kind of uh, worrisome problem, Radic, huh? They came up with the one child solution, which I think is the most detrimental decision they ever made for their society because their society is based on family and with mm -hmm. one child you destroy the family you know and you destroy the you also destroy a whole generation of people well basically too because they have no brothers and sisters they have no you know you have two parents and you have four grandparents and they all dote over you you know so that's a terrible thing to be you have princes and princesses and uh No, I think, I, I understand your question, but that question we've always asked ourselves. And um, and even, Axel, even the way you formulated that question is as an economic question. You know, is mm. there enough, will there be enough supply in the world for the demand that's placed on the resources of the world? So I think the economics will sort that out. And the other thing is, we're not going to eliminate suffering. Mm. You know, we have as much chance of eliminating suffering as we do of eliminating happiness. You know, 
there's, there's no such thing as a life that's, that's, you know, I mean, I know you guys are different. You know, I can tell from when I look at Daryl, he's like happy, like 95% of, of the time, you know, and, and, the, and the 5% of the time when he's not, not happy, he's probably asleep. But, uh, you know, for people like Axel, for people like Axel and me, you know, I mean, like, you know, we get beaten up every day and then, you know, every once in a while we get to hang out with people like you and then we feel better. But, uh, you know, most of our lives, you know, uh, is what Hobbes describes it as. So I, I think that uh, you know we're never going to eliminate suffering, and, and that and that is another thing. You know, going back to what you said, uh, what Daryl said before about precision medicine, we've promised so mm. much with, and, and frankly, we deliver so little compared to what we promised. I mean, I can take you back in in the in stories of Time magazine, I think going back to the 1930s, saying they're going to kill cancer. And then, in the, you know, on the cover of Time magazine, and then in the 1950s, you know, the same title, basically, but with a different picture, 1960, the same thing. And, you know, we're still t telling everybody, you know, we're going to, we're going to kill cancer. Uh, we haven't done a very good job of it. We haven't done a very good job, really, with HIV. But on the other hand, Francis, like, if for, for everyone who gets the diagnosis of cancer, Nowadays, we are the first time in our history where this doesn't mean a death sentence. Like we can usually survive it nowadays with precision medicine. So I, I, I think that there's already a massive shift uh, in, in how we can treat diseases and how this uh, actually affects our, our lives and how long we live. Right. No doubt. And, and uh, you're right to correct me on that. 100% right. No, no doubt. Mm. I mean, the other area, you know, especially for a wimp like me, the other area that's important is painkillers. You know? you know, if I go to the doctor, if I go to a dentist, you know, I want him to give me Novocaine before I open my mouth. You know? <laughs> you know? yeah, I don't even want him looking in there or her. I have a so my dentist is a woman. I don't even want her to look at my teeth before she gives me Novocaine, you know? So, I mean, and that, you know, just, and, and you know, as you talk about seconds, you know, that's a, you know, quarter of a second of mankind or something or humankind that we've had this, yeah. this miracle drugs available to us. They're absolute yeah. miracles, you know? Yeah. I agree, but let's, let's say, I mean, it's obvious that, uh, we are guilty of it, uh, the scientists, but probably more like the the, the press um, that we overpromise easily because uh, usually, of course, we need grant money and we need uh, we need to be cited and we need the love of the people. Like everyone wants to be loved, so um, we tell we we are tend to uh, overpromise, right? Like we can do this, we can do that, and then we see oh, it takes ten times as long to reach the goal. But nevertheless, I think we are we are living in a very very crucial time of our species history, mm. and something we have never seen before, because there's a convergence of developments that we are probably not prepared about. This is one is of course the emergence of precision medicine, of genetic engineering, AI, um, new currencies, blockchain. Um, nanotechnology, um, social media, social COVID. media. 
COVID pandemics. We are living too close and like like rats in a cage. So there's so many things that come at the same time. So we have to deal with at the same time. And don't you think that it's it's too much for humanity, or or will we eventually deal with all of these changes? Well, the, the prediction models for human population, uh, it, 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 there'll be a certain point where it goes up, and it will just collapse, and there'll be a there'll be a, a few billion left uh, after the carnage of you know I don't know how many tens of billions die, but that's that's not predicted till in the next century sometime, but. I mean, we can kick the can down the road as much as we can, and uh, you know, I, I'm I'm going from being I'm going into my five percent now of, uh, of 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 unhappiness. But the whole point of my being is is to try to help the popul the, the the world um, sort of like help in sort of getting people as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And as you say, we're a, it's the aging condition that we we have, and the, the longer we live, the more interesting these. Um, diseases are. I mean, we, we didn't really think of things like dementia, ALS, or, or and that kind of thing, because most people die but we might take well, a lot of well before those, right? hmm. But now it's becoming quite an interesting area because people are living to, into their, you know, 60 and 70 is kind of like, oh my God, I should be dying. I should, I should be well, you know, that should be nothing at 80 or 90 or, you know, <laughs> I want to live to be 200 or 300 or, you know, we know this with longevity and longevity yeah. stuff. I mean, these, these are kind of interesting areas that are, at this moment, the, the, the sways of the very wealthy and the very stupid in some respects um, um, that have too much money to spend. And, but in general, it's kind of interesting how uh, people are, 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 are sort of taking um, what we're doing And, and utilizing but, but but this brings me to another question and i want to ask this to, to francis because uh obviously let's let's imagine um you have the opportunity to to be immortal for example by crispr technology by genome editing some some one comes to you and say hey francis look take this pill and you will live forever and it works would you do it or would you say or, or would you consider the greater ethical aspects of being immortal what what would it do to our uh, our species on the planet so how would, would you deal with it you, you may be coming into the situation in the next 20 30 years i mean researchers are working on this on, on longevity and i'm i'm sure i can almost guarantee you that we will come to the point where we at least can be 150 years old or, or, or older so how, how would you deal with it? I think you're going to the hundreds. I think it'll. I think it will go into the hundreds, Axel. I don't think it'll be 150. Yeah. I think it'll be two, three hundred that we'll go into eventually. Absolutely. But how do we deal with this? Didn't Abraham live to be 600 years old, according to the Bible? <laughs> so, I'm, but um, I, I'll tell you this. I'll take your experiment in a different way. If you come to me with and you put a gun at my head and you say, Here are two pills. One pill says you will live forever. And the other pill says you will die right now. And uh, you have to choose. I will take the pill that says you have to die right now. I, I can't imagine, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, and, and this is, this comes from somebody who, th who thinks life is precious and valuable to the extreme. But 
you know, as Aristotle says, if you couldn't close your eyes, you'd be in a terrible place. And, you know, if you were like a fish, you could never close your eyes. Or, for example, if you could not forget things, you would be in a terrible place, too. Right. But we are not there yet. Stephen Hawkins made his point of the, the very small mirrors are very large. And I think it was his unified theory that he was trying to think of, that, but everything's the same. So I think, and I think of it in terms of wealth, that, you know, if you're a multimillionaire or a billionaire, you'll spend your money on a, you know, a LaFerrari or, a, 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 you know, or something. If you have no money at all, you'll probably walk or you'll have a bicycle. Or if you're an average person you'll probably get a small family car and it's all relative to to your experience and and, and your your knowledge and i think that's that and your wealth at that moment of time and i think that's the same with age or if you live to be 500 years old then you'll just i, I remember a, a scene in i think one of the star treks where there there's a planet that they go to where they um they they live forever effectively i think they're and there's an aspect of where somebody had been making a carpet for, I think, a hundred years or something, and he was an apprentice. Uh, and I thought that, for me, that was kind of like really interesting because it was the first time I'd actually thought about, I mean, outside the preposterous nature of me living forever, it, it, which is not going to happen in my life, I don't think, but, um, uh, but it, you know, modern technology, sanitation has pushed the boundaries of, of how long people will live. Um, there will be, as you say, there'll be other technologies that, that will push so, so would you further. would you expect think, that at some what, point you are tired of life? I'm a seeker. I'm a seeker of knowledge. So for myself, um, when, if I live to be, if I know that I'm going to live for 200 years, let's say, it, to me, it gives me the opportunity to do things in that. And again, it, it, if I if I live to be 50, if I knew I was going to live to be 50. I'd still try and cram that information in uh, my knowledge into that space or a hundred. And that's what we're doing now. You know, average age is what, 80, 90 before we die. Um, you kind of work out what you're going to do in that period of time. If it was 200 or three, four, five, 5,000 years. Would it make us lazy? The first, the first thousand years I'm going to be at university and it's kind of like, you know, it, it, nothing will change. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a question. I, I mean, think we can, I think we can ask the question, but I don't think we can understand. We can understand the question. Yeah. I don't think we can. We can. We can understand what life is without death. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, as Heidegger says, we live towards death. That's our life. We live towards it. That's how we build our lives towards our death. And we can't. We can't understand. We couldn't understand meaning in life at least maybe I'm entirely wrong, but we couldn't understand meaning in life if we didn't know that life was finite. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do it. And, and that's what, because meaning is finite in a sense and it's contextualized and everything else. Um, yeah, the other thing is dying is, can be very difficult. You know, I've seen relatives who want to die and death doesn't come easily for them they have to wait for it you know people talk about waiting for death and 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 that's also not a pleasant end of life 
but nobody is guaranteed a pleasant end of life. We, nobody is guaranteed that. Absolutely nobody. You know, uh, no matter how much money or how comfortable you are or how great your family is, nobody's guaranteed that. So death is a very, it's a, re, it's a part of life. It's, I think it's for me, it's, and, they, and that's my limitation and I'll, I'll, I'll keep it that way. But um, I don't see how we can understand life without, underst without having death as the place where we're going to. And the place that actually gives meaning to life in a certain sense. Right. I think, I think it's probably deep inside we understand this, right? Like many years when, when I was a young guy, I was uh, doing a civilian service in, in Germany and my job was to um, just be present with uh, people who were who were dying, so to to just sit with them in their last hours. Um, so I was working this uh, care center for for the elderly, and whenever a doctor said, "Okay, this person is dying," they they called me, and so I was basically rushed in and I was just sitting with them and talking to them if they could still talk. Um, and my experience was that the vast majority of people that I had there lying next to me in the process of dying were absolutely fine and they had absolutely no problem. They, they said, okay, that's, that's it. I lived my life and now it comes to an end. That's, that's okay. I, yeah, I, cannot, I, I think I cannot even remember one case where one was fighting still I said I don't want to die and uh, I still have so much to do and everyone accepts it at some point that this is just a normal part of, of living is also to die at some point right I think the interesting part of this is 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 to live a good life and, and to to have the opportunities to to do that and uh, science and 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 just what we do is one of those positive things that I think we can do. I mean, I, I help a lot of people in, in clinical genomics to overcome certain diseases. And it, it's one of the, the joys to actually, yeah, that there, there are a lot of the cases where that doesn't happen or, the, or you, you're, you're frustrated in the sense that you can't find the causal reason for that. And there, there are some really interesting companies that are looking at solutions to do that, helping clinicians um, and, and working on data. But yeah, I mean, I, I think so long as you pack your existence with a, as much good as possible, um, do no evil, <laughs> um, or as little, little evil as possible, uh, then then you can you can be happy in, in in that. Probably we can say that a good death requires a good life, hmm. but we can equally say that a good life requires a good death. Hmm. And, and if you have a death that you, in Axel's term, that you cannot accept, or that is in a certain way opposed from you on out, from outside, that will affect how your life how you understand your life, how you understood your life, and how others will understand your life. 
But I think that, you know, life is a very, <laughs> Axel understands better with his German background, but life is a very big word, of course, in philosophy, you know. And, it is, uh, yeah. And, and uh, if we equate life as many German thinkers do that uh, with thought, I don't believe thought dies. Or, or consciousness in itself. Well, I would just say thought. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think thought dies. And I don't think thought is particular to you or to me or to anybody else. Nobody has a thought that belongs to them. And by thinking something, we contribute to thought mm. just by thinking it, just by thinking it. And, uh, but it's a contribution. It's a strange thing in it for me to understand, but, you know, uh, you know, philosophy is full of this design and sight or, or, uh, or what is and what is not. Huh? And thought is not, it does not exist the way the world exists for me. It doesn't. That's a fascinating part of it because you cannot really quantify it. You cannot put a number behind it. What, what does it no, actually no. mean? No. That's why data is a weird thing because data is this, also this thing that we don't really, we can't put our hands on, you know, we can't see as part of the physical world. It's something close to the numeric world or something. That's, that's maybe why, why some people say that we are actually living in a mathematical universe, that we are just pure mathematics. It's, we are mostly an illusion. I, I, I'm more protective of data as well. I think that's why I'm protective of data. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I, th I think that's fundamentally why, because it's so precious and so important. Um, to what level, I don't know. I mean, the individual, the, the, or let's go to the world, to the country, to the city, to the family, to the individual, to the chromosome, to the gene, to the atom, whatever, you know, what level does, 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 does the, I think it's your background that's, that's, uh, that's causing this axle that's making me think about this, but. Uh... <laughs> well, if you think about the, you know, since you guys wanted to do it, I didn't want to do it, but since you guys wanted to go down the philosophical turn, I mean, if you think about the ontology of data, you know, what is data, you know, what it really is. Yeah. I think, I don't know how to say this, you guys could do it better than me, but I think essentially data is not something you can own. I think essentially you cannot own it. And that is part of the problem with data sharing, because I can share my glass of water with you, or I can share Axel's glass of whiskey, he can share that with me. But, but that's because in a certain sense, it has property assigned to it. But in a certain, that's the problem with data. It's hard to, to give that kind of uh, property to it. Mm. I think it's very difficult to do that. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm talking too much. Yeah. I think the value, the value in data is how you analyze the data. I think, I think data on its own, it is, you know, as you said, 10 degrees outside means many things to many different people. But if I'm, if I'm posing a question 
on the data. Maybe that is where the value lies in, in the system, for want of a better word, um, and the reports that we run on the data. The data itself, as you, as you say, it rightly say, it, it's, it's effect, effectively worthless. That the, um, the power of the data is what I can actually utilize it for. And again, for, for, for many different areas. I mean, we, we... Well, I, you know, I've been shaking my computer and looking underneath it and behind it, and I still can't find the data. I know it, you know, <laughs> I, I took it apart. I took one apart. And, and, you know, it just cost me a lot of money, but I still didn't find the data, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. So. But in this context, uh, to, to slowly wrap up here, um, Francis, what, what do you think is really the biggest question science has to tackle in the coming decades? What, what well, is actually, the I'd game like changer? I, I, well, okay, that's the same thing. I wanted to come back to something, but that's the same thing. I mean, data is the biggest thing we have to, we have to tackle. I mean, sometimes I think that data is also, and maybe I'm in good company here with Daryl, data is more real than the world mm. to a certain extent. And, and we, we have to tackle that and how we do it is really important. Now, uh, as Axel knows, I've been following the, the FAIR people, the GoFAIR people, because um, I got interested in that, because, partly because of Axel, it's his fault. And, and you mentioned CDISC <laughs> and H. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you mentioned um, HL7 and so and, and, and HL7 and all these kinds of uh, systems that say we have for organizing data and being mm. able to to use it actually. Huh? And this is a huge question I have because I get on these calls with these people from GoFair and they don't like me because I'm asking them, yeah, but what are you doing that hasn't been done already? Or aren't you, you know, because they're creating this huge system. You know, it's and, and not only a huge system, a huge vocabulary. Mm. And that really frustrates me because I can't follow everything they're saying because I, I'm always <laughs> behind the ball on, on when they're talking their, their vocabulary. But that's my fault. That's not theirs. But, um, and we, I don't know. And then, and the, of course, they're full of this metadata stuff, which I don't, really understand what that is you guys do i know but i wonder if we we have to find a much simpler way of sharing this data we can't be creating systems on top of systems right to do something that should be relatively simple you know it shouldn't be much more difficult than Taking money out of the wall, or you know, using your credit card. That's that's a good point. I think that, that, I think one big problem we have is, especially in academic sciences, is that all these beautifully hyper intelligent scientists, but they are not necessarily practical. Like we are all, always in our brains, and I think what we have to learn is to 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 bring our science out there. So I always say, look, if if I develop something a new gadget, something cool with AI or genetics. My grandmother needs to understand this. If she cannot do it, it's worthless. Yeah. So everyone needs to be able to 
uh, benefit from these developments. That's, that's absolutely important and essential. If you think about data and you think about healthcare, then you have to think about the person on the street who has no home, mm. who has no money, who can't take a shower, and they have to be able to access data and healthcare. That's the mm. level it has to go to. Yeah. It, it cannot be for, it cannot be an academic pursuit because the world, our world, data is too big for academia today. It's too much. It's, it, it's, not, it's not just something that we generate with computers anymore or that it belongs only inside of computers. It's a bit like, you know, behind you, uh, you have that beautiful library there, mm. you know? And, um, and we know throughout history, we have collected a large part of our wealth and reflected our wealth in what we know in our libraries. Huh? And that goes, you know, back to the Greeks and the Macedonians and everything else, to the Egyptians, all of this collection of wealth in a certain sense in a library. You know, the establishment then of national libraries, right? And of public libraries then bringing this wealth to people, right? And really interesting to find now that I, that I, I never, I used to teach library science. I never, don't tell anybody, but I, that's just like pure death, you know? But I mean, who could work in a, I worked in a library once for a while, jeez. But, um, and, and now what I see is you guys from genomics have gone into this area of libraries and you talk about the libraries of genomics in a certain sense. And now the people who are doing data science and who are doing all this data sharing stuff, these are all librarians. Mm. This is really interesting. So we have to be the librarians of genetic data. I think, I think also for, um, for innovation as well. So there's a company called Quantum DX in Newcastle in, in, in England, and they're doing point of care devices, which if you ask Jono about what he's doing, he's, it's a great thing that they're doing with, with this device that, that can utilize data and information. But his real goal is, is, if you ask him, maybe he will tell you about what's happening in South Africa in terms of tuberculosis and how a TB test there is, is 10 bucks, which to anybody outside of that particular area, it's okay, it's 10 bucks, it's no, it's, it's no bother. But when you look at it in terms of the, the, the actual individual that, that earns less than that in a month, for instance, then that's a huge amount. And he's trying to bring point of care device to make it so that it's, it's a fraction of a dollar so that they can actually run these tests. And so um, it, it's where innovation and technology meet where we can actually utilize the, the data aspect uh, and the understanding of information so that we can, we can, we can work in these, in these, in these areas. And I think that's, that to me is, is, is where the future lies in sort of this area. It's, it's where the data will help um, lower the cost and the barriers to a lot of medicine and a lot of technology and a lot of understanding. 
uh, in many ways, in many ways. I mean, we, we talk about genomics and medicine and, and this, that and the other, but the, the, to me, the future of, of data is really uh, lowering the barrier for a lot of areas and a lot of countries to get access to, the, to pertinent information that can help. I think you're right. I think it's not just barriers for healthcare. It's going to be, you know, education. I mean, it, it comes down to that, really. <laughs> it has a great data. I mean, but it's not going to solve our problems. It's not going to be. This is not the solution. Just like the, you know, um, characterizing the human genome is not going to solve our all our health problems or so. It's going to bring us just into another area. I mean. Mm -hmm. There's going to, you know, we're all in the boat probably of open science, but now, of course, Europe is going down the route of also of data sovereignty or even digital sovereignty, as they say, right? So, which is a necessary path that has to be pursued because we have, to, well, because data governance is absolutely important. If we get it wrong, like we did with the GDPR, then it's not going to help us. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, yeah, I, I think we we still have a, but it's promising. It's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So Francis, my question to you before we come to our last question, which is here on this very valuable yes. card. Um, for young scientists or, or, or young people who want to go into science or related fields, this could be also data analytics or anything that has to do with data. And this is almost everything nowadays. What career advice do you have for these young people? So what, what should they look out for? Where, where would you advise them to go in this area? I think... I think two things really. Um, you have to pursue what you're interested in. Mm. But um, it, it, uh, you have to pursue it. It's not because you're interested in it or because you have a curiosity. You have to learn it. You have to, you have to, knowledge is something that you, that you work very hard to get. Mm. And you really have to pursue it. It won't come to you, which is very strange because you probably don't learn anything you don't already know, but you still have to work really hard to do it. Mm. So there's a great effort that's, that's there. And, um, and then I think the other thing we have to know today is, but I think that's clearer and clearer is um, you don't know where you're going in life. You never know where you're going. And the sooner you can become comfortable with that and accept that and accept as a young person or an old person that things don't always work out the way you want them to work out. But that doesn't mean that opportunities end at that point. You know, then that's really, you know, we're born to pursue science. Mm. All of us are. Every human being is. 
We're born yeah, to know. Yeah, we explorers. So basically, we can summarize. We do not know what the future holds, and we have to be adaptable. And this well, the only way to know what the future holds, I think, is to read Axel Schumacher's book. And that's about as close as we'll get to knowing what the future holds, because I think you're absolutely right. Blockchain, you know, blockchain is inevitable. It's the only cure to so many ills in this society. I mean, it's the only, it's the at-hand cure for so many ills in society, you know, from voting in the U.S. to, um, to precision medicine, to mm -hmm. sharing data, to having a commerce that works, to getting rid of corruption in society and things like that. Um, blockchain is, is a great thing, I think. It yeah. won't be the, it won't, it won't be the end of the discussion, but it definitely is the next step. Yeah. So that, let's come to our, the last part of our fantastic first podcast. And this is our community questions, or let's say one question. And um, Francis, this is to you, since you are our, our guest in this. If you could travel in time, where would you go? If you have to go back in time and yeah, where would you go? What would you do? Uh, I've never, I'm a strange person that way. I've always been happy being how old I am and being where I am. Mm. And uh, actually I'm a very home buddy in a certain sense. You know, I grew up in the US and you know, I never knew anything outside of my hometown to a certain extent. Uh, and then I came to Europe and I've been living in this house for almost 30 years and I, and I don't want to move, you know, I don't want to go anywhere. Um, no, I think, I think we live in a fantastic world the way it is. And I can see going back. If you, if you ask that question, it's to me like asking, well, you know, would you like to take vacation in the steppe in, in Kazakhstan, or would you like to go to the, to the, the jungle in Brazil, or would you like to go to the, you know, beautiful savannah in, in Tanzania. Mm. Well, I'll just look and see how much money I have and which one I can afford, you know. And yeah. It's probably going to be another year of staying home, but that's okay too, you know. I remember, you know, riding my bike in the bike club here, you know, in Belgium, you know, and, and, and in summer with my companions, you know, going through the local back roads here and thinking, you know, why do people go on vacation? You know? So Axel, where would you go? Would you, where would you go back or what would you do? What's your well, I, I, I would definitely try to um, build my own time machine and just visit all areas of, of, of our past, just out of curiosity, right? Um, Michael J. Fox going to be with you as well. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, coming back a little bit to, to the data problem. Um, information, of course, is also lost in time. Mm. Like if we are not careful about preserving data, 
as as Francis uh, mentioned, like we, the, the, there's a massive importance of libraries. Now. So I would love to go back into my two three thousand years ago when the first societies really developed the the first large cities were built from our species and when they also built the first libraries and just be there sit in one of those libraries and and, and see what's around like this is so suppose part. suppose you could go to mars they said look we've got a flight leaving tomorrow you can go to mars and on Mars, we have a beautiful factory where you can set up your healthcare blockchain health for all database. Would you get on that flight? Immediately. Mm -hmm. I would go. I mean, but you're asking the wrong guy here. Like I was, yeah. uh, I was. In the, in the, I'm going to say that's the wrong guy to ask that question. <laughs> I, I was in the astronaut uh, um, uh, program, and I was, um, I was uh, one of the early members of the Mars Society, uh, a society that is uh, tries to develop means how we can get to Mars and how to how we can live on Mars. So yes, I would go. I would go, even if I, I would know that I may have not the chance to go back. I'm too much explorer. Like mm. maybe an opposite to, to Francis. Like I am I am someone who has to go out there and explore the world and whatever it takes. And I think this is also part of what is in our genes, at least in some parts of, of our human population. Maybe there's a gene for it. We have to maybe have to look at the we have to sequence and then see if there's a difference between us like but this the um the the, the old explorers we had already in, in, in the middle ages and then during 16th 17th century that had been out there like mm. columbus marco polo maybe they had some gene in common that made them go out there despite the dangers i mean imagine like spe specifically at, at, at the time when columbus was uh, doing his voyages for for a sailor for, for for a person going to the sea it was absolutely not sure if he would come back alive mm. yeah it was it was dangerous there were pirates yeah, your ship could sink you would die from all kinds of diseases on on, on the ship it was um, almost like tossing a coin like 50 50 if you would come back alive or not and still those people went out there and explored the world mm. and, and and i think this is something common in our species that's what makes us so special in the in the wider things like that we are probably the only species who, who do that we risk our lives for for just exploring where we have no idea what comes out of it and if we get out alive doing this but it's still, it's just so fascinating. Daryl, I think that gives you a beautiful perspective <laughs> for your future podcast. <laughs> indeed, indeed it does. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So let's, let's 
let's take this all positive. We don't know what the future will bring, but we are working on it. And we, I would like to encourage everyone to take part of it. Make the best out of your life. Memento Mori, read the old philosophers, read Marcus Aurelius and uh, the other Stoics. So this is my recommendation for today. <laughs> Think positive. Think positive, guys, yeah. Think positive, and we see, at least Daryl, I hope we see each other at the next podcast. And thank you so much, Francis. It was great talking to you. Yeah, and maybe, talking we'll, maybe we will invite you back and talk about more <laughs> philosophy. So <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Daryl. Thank you, Axel. And uh, I wish you a wonderful uh, journey on this voyage you've started. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I'm so happy to be the first passenger on your spaceship to Mars. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Ah, all right, there we are. The end of the show. What did we learn when it comes to dealing with healthcare data? Hmm? Who knows it? Who knows it? Okay, I will tell you. Share it. Oh, yeah, seriously. The spread of the coronavirus pandemic has exposed the fragility in our healthcare ecosystems. And it taught us that prevention really lies on community engagements. Sharing your data with researchers will create impact, as sharing data will help the global fight against pandemics and complex and rare diseases. Yeah, that's right. Ah, before you go, um, if you enjoy the show, please leave a like. And, um, oh, please subscribe to the channel. This really helps us out. And if you watch this on YouTube, please press the bell icon to get the new podcast updates. Huh? Thank you so much. Okay, I have to go. I love you. Take care. <laughs>